0: Hi, I'm Teresa Weezar, your host of One in Ten. In today's episode, A Sea of Red Dots, the explosion in online child sexual abuse. I speak with three guests, Elizabeth and Ted Cross, eminent co-researchers of child sexual abuse materials online or CSAM, and Stefan Turkheimer, the Vice President of Public Policy at Rain. While the presence of child sexual abuse images and child sexual abuse cases is not new, The sheer scale, scope, and ubiquity of it all certainly is. The exponential growth in the trading of these images has now created a sophisticated marketplace designed entirely around exploiting children. What Liz and Ted set out to learn was the degree to which incest played into the production of this material, what types of sex acts those trading in CSAM were most interested in, and what ages were most common among the child victims depicted. It's all terribly, terribly disturbing, but also important for us to fully understand in order to properly combat it. How they went about this work was ingenious, as you're going to hear. But what is most important is what we learned to help inform our own investigations of child sexual abuse in order to protect these kids and better serve child victims of it. And we also speak with Stefan about the very important policy implications of this terrible CSAM scourge. What can policymakers do to hold tech companies more responsible for preventing the proliferation of these materials in the first place? And how do we leverage the resources needed to better serve victims? I know you'll be as interested in this discussion as I was. Please take a listen. Well, Liz, Ted, and Stefan, welcome to 1 in 10. Thank you. We're very pleased to be here. Wonderful to be
1: here. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you all. And you know, we don't often have the pleasure of having three guests on at once. So I'm really excited to be talking to you guys today. So let me just kind of start for people. I mean, you're talking to a child abuse professional audience. So Mm -hmm. everyone who's listening probably knows something about child sexual abuse materials, but they may not know as much about that as they know about other things. And also, there's some nuances to all of this. I just sort of want to do some level setting so that everyone's participating in the conversation and everybody who's listening is kind of operating from the same base of information. So maybe starting with you, Ted, can you just talk a little bit about what the scope of this problem is? I think people know that there's a lot of CSAM out there. They know it's online. They know it's a problem. But I'm not sure they really know the full scope of the problem.
2: It's it's an enormous problem. It's a scourge, and we all need to be aware of it. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children maintains NICMIC, its acronym, cyber tip line, and reported that uh, they have received over 29 million reports of apparent child sexual abuse material, and that's just what's been reported to them. That has to be the tip of the iceberg. Liz and I sampled files from the Child Rescue Coalition. The Child Rescue Coalition is a nonprofit, criminal justice oriented with law enforcement professionals that track the trading of child sexual abuse material worldwide. And they maintain data about millions of CSAM files and the trade and Thousands, if not millions, of people um, trading it and producing it. Listen, I sampled three thousand data about three thousand files. Mind you, we didn't—God forbid—we did not, we did not actually deal with the content itself, but we dealt with data from it. We sampled three thousand. We could have sampled three million. That's how much there is.
0: It's just shocking. Do you know what I mean? When I think when people hear these numbers, are just staggering numbers and. We know that people who trade in these files have many files. You know, it's rare that it's like one image, one file, right? It's many, 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 many. So one of the things I was reflecting on was the map that you guys showed in a PowerPoint that you shared with me about where these basically suspects are, where these computers are that are trading all these files. Can you talk a little bit, if you remember the map, about just sort of what was your own impression when you saw all of these red dots, you know, all over the US, and just the sheer number of computers slash suspects, because they're tied to a suspect, who are trading this material. I mean, I found that, frankly, as surprising as the 29 million.
3: Well, I think, as with all scourges, we were shocked, but not surprised. I mean, we knew that was going on, and I remember when I first started in this in research, I in social work. This was back in the 80s. Child sexual abuse was being seen on the ground, but it had not yet been lifted to a, you know a real public discussion. This feels similar. That having maps like this are a real mind blower, and we need to share them with as many people as we can. Mm-hmm.
0: I think one of the things that people sometimes think is that this sort of problem sounds like something that must be primarily in cities or maybe it's located someplace very specifically. And the thing that I was struck by the map of the U.S. is you can just see that it's it's red dots everywhere. (laughs) You know, wherever there are human beings, there are red dots on that map. And you know to see that just at that one point in time 300,000 and some odd like a vast number of potential mm-hmm. suspects and that right. snapshot i think was you know just another reminder even for someone just like you just like me who sees this kind of data all the time it's just like it's a vast number of people that we have to be concerned about who are trading these trading these images trading these materials i'm just wondering also To what extent have resources for investigation kept up with the kind of scale that we're seeing? So in other words, if there are 29 million of these chips coming in, and if there are more than 300,000 suspects and all of these things, what have we seen in terms of the state and federal government investment in addressing this? And maybe, Stefan, that's a question for you.
1: It's a really good question. And the answer is, is that whatever resources are being provided are being outstripped by the problem by, you know, uh, 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. When you look at that map, what you're actually seeing is all of the reports. Generally, they're coming into NCMEC and then are being found to have, you know, an IP address or, or enough parts of the report so that they can be sent to law enforcement. But law enforcement doesn't have anywhere near the ability to research all of those things. They're trying to decide who has the most files, who's sharing the most files, how egregious are those files, what's the likelihood that there's a hands on offense going on. They're making determinations like that. But the reality is, is they actually don't have the freedom to make all those determinations and they don't have the resources to investigate all those people. So when you look at all those red dots on the map, one of the things to think is that actually only um, I think it's around five percent of those people are under investigation. Most of those reports are going to age out before a police officer ever even looks at them, and even even opens the file. Anyone goes and investigates that. So, the answer to your question is not enough. Right? There is not enough federal and state support, um, law enforcement support, other support, support for survivors in the entire system. I mean, there are efforts that are being made to change that to try to provide uh, more funding to these systems, but also to help prioritize the children in the process and, and helping the children escape these situations. So the reality of the situation is it's like you've got an underfunded system trying to take on a problem that, like as Ted was talking about, 29 million reports per year, which is actually close to 90 million images. And that's only a very small percentage of what we actually think is going on on the internet. So um, yeah, the answer is there's not enough support for it. There's not enough funding.
2: But I wanna elaborate on that a little bit, if I may. Please. Um, Even if the glass is half full, even if it, and it's not half full, it's maybe a quarter full or a 10th full, that 10th of a glass is really important. States have, uh, there's a network of internet crimes against children task forces across the United States. As you know, a lot of my work is centered in Illinois. And in October, I spent a couple of days out with the the state chapter there at a training. And I reached out to their ICAC task force people. She had to be one of the most dedicated people I've ever talked to in my life. And she was reaching out and available to every CAC in Illinois. So, yes, it's a huge problem. It's overwhelming. But progress has been made. And CACs have resources to tap to deal with it.
0: You're pointing out two things that are really important, which is sometimes when you hear such overwhelming numbers, people go into this position of helplessness, like, oh, well, we'll never be able to do anything about it because it's such an overwhelming problem. But actually, to the contrary, there are some really effective interventions and professionals working on this. It's really that they need to be resourced adequately to do the work that they already know how to do, already trained to do, already are positioned well to do, if they had, you know, more help in that way. One of the other things I'm thinking about is we've been talking also about like the trading of images and where that happens. Mm -hmm. I'm also curious about what we know about where it's produced, you know, and does that seem to center in certain places around the globe? Does it, I mean, it certainly happens everywhere, but is there anything about its production that's different from the sharing of it that we should pay attention to when we're looking at triaging these cases, when we're looking at solutions or other things?
2: Uh, That's a good question. Yeah. um, I don't think there's great research so that we can map the production of it in the way that we're mapping the trading of it. If we could do that, then boy, we would be able to catch a lot more perpetrators, right? If we could find out where they're producing it, we could swoop in and catch more of them, right? Um, but one of the things I, I think it's worth talking about is the international aspect of that, right? Do you? Shall I go on, or do you want to talk about yeah. that? Hmm? You can go. Okay, ahead. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> See how wonderfully we're turn taking. Great job! Great job. <laughs> in our research, and we'll we'll talk more about it, the victims of CSAM were diverse, and that's normally a positive thing. But this is a a negative thing. There were victims from all over the world. In fact, some recent work suggested that a large proportion of the victims mm-hmm. are from Latin America, and we particularly Mexico. Particularly Mexico. Mexico particularly in Mexico. And there is an aspect of uh, a sex tourism aspect of this where people from advantaged countries go to disadvantaged countries and recruit children to participate in creating CSAM. And so there's actually a, a sort of a racial and economic justice aspect to this as well.
0: There's so much about it that just sort of stomach churning, you know, aside from just the way it's produced and all of those things, what you're talking about in terms of just another way in which kids who are already disadvantaged are being exploited because of where they happen to be or the fact that they're not as adequately resourced to begin with. You've been talking a little bit about your research, so I really want to sort of pivot there for a moment because I thought that the research project was very interesting and so, Liz, I'm wondering if you'll just lay out for us, first of all, what the research design was, just like, what did you decide to look at and why?
3: Well, I don't think we can let this conversation go on much longer without identifying and lauding our spiritual uh, guide and uh, catalyst for this project, who's Camille Cooper, when she was at RAIN. RAIN was securing funding for a wide, a wide scope of activities related to this. And Stefan can talk more about the legislative activities. She has been in this world for so long and worked with law enforcement for so long that she was able to really bring forward those questions and, and really helped us shape those questions. Do you want to? Because she really reached out to you
2: first. Right, or? right. Camille's interest and kind of raison d'etre, the reason for being for this research is to understand. scope of the problem and also understand its implications for investigating contact child abuse, the kind of investigations that CRCs are involved with every day. Um, We were interested in looking at a sample of cases in which child sexual abuse material was being circulated, purveyed, talked about, shared. And understanding the characteristics of the children that were involved, the abuse that was being depicted, and the relationship of the offenders to the children in those cases. One of our major hypotheses was that incest plays a major role in these. And of course, that would relate that potential to cases that CECs are involved with every day. can I talk a little bit about the design and the-, the Please magic? do, sure. yeah. Sure, all right. As I said, we did, thank God we did not deal with these files and material itself. The content. The content, we did not deal with the content. But through the tracking work that the Child Rescue Coalition does, and they were really full partners in this, Glenn Pounder and uh, Simon Bailey have been key partners in this work, uh, we were able to sample cases from their database that they primarily are maintaining for law enforcement purposes, but also interested in research applications for, we were able to take a random sample of 3,000 cases from the United States during our study period, Mm -hmm. which was what, two? um, do you remember? Six months. Six months. It was a
3: random sample.
2: Remind me of the date. Do you remember the dates?
3: Um, We started three years ago, so it was around three years, and it was a January to July collection, I think.
2: Right, from about 2020 or so, right? Yeah, yeah, right.
3: 2020 Um, makes sense. And
2: the actual data were the file names, Mm -hmm. how these purveyors and producers of this uh, and traders in it were naming the files, and of course... Our assumption was that those file names had descriptive information about what was in the file, but also was a way of marketing. See, come look at our files, and that they would put in there information that they considered attractive to users. So um, I'm just going to paraphrase a file name. We try not to actually state the actual file names because we don't want anyone... This Of course. We don't want anyone out there using this and going looking for this file, mm-hmm. but it might the file name might talk about uh, a mother engaged in sexual acts with the child and the type of sexual acts that were involved. And they tended to be fairly brief, but some of the file names were, you know,
3: some of the file names were long because they had all the um acronyms that these folks share about where something came from and so they named a lot of uh, some defunct producers of Csam that's people who'd already been shut down and arrested and that was from another country
0: I mean it seems to me that the, what you're saying is that they tried to make them not only more marketable with the file name but also easier for a keyword search you know understanding yeah. that the right. paper, who are the consumers, because of the volume of files that they have, want that to be easily searchable when they're looking for a particular image um, or those kinds of things. I think it was an ingenious way to go about this, you know, really. Right. And and relates to a deep understanding of how these cases work and how the minds of the sort of people who trade these things and produce these things work. Now, to, you had, if I'm remembering right, three different research questions. Is that right? I think so. One, I believe, and I'd have to look at my own notes, but I think that one had to do with the relationship between the victim and whoever else was in the image, right? So specifically incest you were looking at, I think, but also just in general, what's that relationship? Also, the types of abuse and whether they were, well, types of abuse broadly, but then when we talk about your findings, the issue of penetration was a huge issue in that and then sort of race and ethnicity. Were there any others, or is that kind of the waterfront on what you were specifically looking at in terms of the files?
3: This was the first round of questions. Okay. And we felt there was an imperative to look at the incest issue, and we were able to see enough identification of the race or ethnicity as a way of marketing this child. Look at this child there. Hispanic, they're Black, they're, you know.
2: Right. We were able to, and Liz was the leader on this, actually code the data to provide characteristics of the child and characteristics of the act, and also to identify those depictions that seem to be related to incest. If there were A mother and a child involved, a father and a child involved, brother and a sister involved.
3: Niece and nephew, uncle. I mean, you name it. Right. Yeah. And yes. And so when color or race, we saw that it was being used, we really made that a primary question because we really wanted to see if there was a difference. And it's a rough measure, really, because it's really what did the file name say? It's not telling us empirically what's going on in all those files.
0: Right. Of I course. mean, you could
3: have a terrible name, and they're eating ice cream. I know that's not true, but but you can you have to imagine that the what forty four percent that didn't really have an identifiable, they didn't have names, they didn't have anything in it that we could.
2: Right. There code. Was, there were some that did not have the majority had right. file names right. that w- had some meaning that we could code, and you yeah. coded. It was a, a heroic effort oh. led by my brilliant wife who coded data for 3,000 of these file names and survived to talk today.
0: Thank we're, we're glad you made it because it does sound like a heroic effort. What struck me about it is, yes, there might be some things where they didn't include mm. things in the file name, or there might be some things that there are things that turn out to be in the files that are not the only things that are in the file name it seems to me that if someone's naming something, they probably aren't naming what to them are the most salient factors, you know, for the position of trading it, finding it, offending, like all of those kinds of things. I'm just wondering, you know, kind of pivoting to your findings, what some of those were. Now, it seemed to me in looking at some of the demographic breakout that it wasn't all that surprising. You know, 58% were girls, that kind of not so surprising when you consider the, even looking at the stats of the kiddos who come into CACs, two thirds were between the age of five and 12. Again, that pretty well tracks on to the CAC population if you were to look at it. Like I didn't find that surprising. I was a little surprised on the ethnicity side, uh you know, both by there being such a large block where they're really wasn't, it wasn't noted at all, Mm -hmm. or didn't seem to be the most salient factor to these if you look at the file names, which I think, I mean, I'm very interested in hearing the conclusion you draw from that. But one of my own just questions about it made me wonder whether the most salient factor to a person who wants to watch these horrible images may not be the ethnicity of the child. It may be other things, a preferred age, Mm -hmm. a preferred act, preferred something else. And not necessarily that, but do you have any of your own hypothesis or even conclusions that you draw from the issue of the ethnicity being, it seems to me, a l- less clear as a salient factor than maybe the others in terms of the way the well, stats came out?
2: This was a U.S. sample. We made a deliberate decision to start with a U.S. sample. It could have been an international sample, but to start with a U.S. sample because we were interested in linking it pretty closely to u.s policy and practice
3: yes and we you know it needed to be bounded so we could really Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. our hunch is that if no ethnicity was noted that the the kids were white oh that's interesting
3: and that's that's again that's just a theory um Mm -hmm. there are other ways to look at it one thing i noticed as i was glancing and i have to find out if it's really true is that Um, A lot of the files didn't have ethnicity named or an act name, had a brand.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
3: So thinking about, again, this is a marketplace. So there was an organization or a producer of CSAM and they were based in Europe. Their files only included their name, like that was the brand. I know there's going to be something in there. So we're just really beginning to scratch the surface of this market.
0: Oh, I think that's true. And I mean, and it makes it even more horrifying to think about this as that type of a sophisticated marketplace that has its own brands in the way that certain drugs have their own brands, you know, Mm -hmm. where, you know, if you get the fentanyl pill with a certain little mark on it, that means something different than if you have, you know, someone out there where it's not, it's just, it's a very interesting thing. I also want to talk a little bit about the severity of abuse. And I want to preface what we're going to talk about by saying, no one on this zoom is by any means implying that ultimately one form of abuse is worse than another more traumatic those kinds of things but these scales of severity exist because we have to have a way of talking about crime and because legally things are treated differently based on what they are so you know i just i empathize with anybody who's a victim themselves who might listen to this and want you to know we take it all very very seriously but one of the things that i'm I have a question for you all about is, did you find what you expected in terms of the content by file name, And were you surprised by the high percentage of the file names that clearly included some sort of penetrative act? I don't know that I was surprised because
3: I always assume it's worse than what we're what we know because mm, mm. that's been the case for a long time. So. I wasn't that surprised. In fact, I think we felt among the many feelings we had coding this and working with this material for which therapists became an important part of processing. Mm -hmm. We felt confirmed in a way. Mm -hmm. We felt, okay, this is something we found something people could really hang their hats on with all the caveats that all this activity was probably taking place in the files that don't name the activity. Uh, Right. So. I mean, it's a combination of responses. One is every file name in some ways was a gut punch mm. and codifying it and getting the percentages did have a little bit of a gut punch. But again, we were we were more excited that, oh, good, we're finding something meaningful. We're finding something interesting that people really need to know about.
0: Sometimes there's been a little bit of a feeling, I have to say, I think out in the general public and certain elements of it anyway, that CCM materials are not necessarily as terrible as other things you know I don't know if you ever get this, but we do occasionally, and it's like you just have no idea what you're talking about, but right. when you see what these file names are, and it's all terrible, it's all awful, but mm-hmm. it just confirms as you're saying this sense of these are not acts that you can minimize in any way. When 68%, or whatever the number was, are all penetrative acts, and that's what people are actively looking for, actively trading, actively searching for, interested in, tucking away, it tells you something about that this is not some sort of victimless crime or some sort of harmless something or less harmful than other things. It's really very serious. Ted, I think Mm I interrupted you. Go ahead.
2: Oh, no, that's okay. Um, Yes, uh, 68% involved penetration, but an additional 7% involved sadism or penetration of or by an animal. And that's 7% of 3,000. Our 3,000 was a a drop in the ocean of millions. So multiply 7% by several million.
3: And the sadistic category, one of the things we coded for in that category is if one of the selling points was the child crying. Oh God. And that has been one of the selling points. It's a very tiny um, group, but yeah, like, oh, crying is a selling point. And that seemed to us to be sadistic. So that's in there as well. And if we could get back to the, trying to organize all of this in a coding, we looked everywhere for something that didn't involve a visual assessment. And it Mm. was almost impossible to find. And then we found the sentencing advisory panel in the UK, their five point scale for sentencing offenders had its own controversies with regard to having that as a guideline for sentencing seemed way too simplistic, but those five categories were so useful as a way to kind of get this voluminous group of files into something that we can start to think about and
0: see where it's differentiating.
2: Mm-hmm. Would it be useful to read off the five categories from lowest to highest?
0: Well, you know, we can put this in the show notes. So oh, if okay. you would permit it, so that people can see that. Because I think you're right, people are going to have questions and be very interested. In your work, one of the things that I also want to make sure we get to, and then I want to turn to some of the implications of this practice and policy-wise, but you started out by talking about that one of the key areas you wanted to look at is sort of the link with incest and also its link with production. What were your actual findings around that in terms of how common it was in the file names?
2: Incest was 23% of the file names altogether that included the ones that didn't have names. Um, And yeah, I don't have the statistics, but it was, I think over 40% of the files that had names featured incest, featured something uh, indicating incest.
0: You know, I wish I'd written the number down, but I do remember it was a, a high number. And I remember also having the same kind of impression about, you know, It's not that we don't know that cases of incest, um, well, frankly, that every single case that comes through a CAC, you have to evaluate for CSAM because with the advent of smartphones, the fact of the matter is there's a good chance that somebody is taken a photo of something along the way. But I think it just really confirmed the importance of that and of not thinking that somehow CSAM cases are so radically different from other kinds of cases, which I think we've Had to try to explain to folks before, you know, because there used to be this kind of idea that these were somehow different. You know, there were CCM cases, then there were the contact cases. And it's like, you know, my friends, they're one big horrible continuum these days. So let's turn to the implications for a minute. And um, Stefan, I want to get you into the conversation a little bit to talk about when you look at all of the findings that we've talked about, what do you see as the implications for policymakers around this?
1: That's such a good question. Cause it really is like, now that we have all this information, what are we going to do with it? What are the things like, yeah, Liz Liz and Ted have gone through in a meticulous way to document all these, all of these files. And so it's like, what are we going to do? Right. Um, And there's, I think it's important to know sort of what the standard is in the world of tech for how they're handling these cases and sort of the sort of the photo DNA of it all. Right. And there is if you think about, say, YouTube, which is not a place where CSAM necessarily finds itself. But like if you think of a place like YouTube and if you if you watch Saturday Night Live. Right. And if you decide, you know what, I really like the skit on Saturday Night Live that I watched tonight and I'm going to record it. I'm going to upload it on Monday to YouTube. Right. That'll be a fun thing to do. As soon as you try to get that thing uploaded, as soon as it hits the YouTube servers, YouTube will recognize that as copyrighted material and won't allow it to be uploaded. Even though it was created on Saturday, by Monday, they've got a system in place to prevent you from sharing that information. That's how important that copyright is to them, right? The copyrighted data. You can do the same thing with a CSAM clip and no one will check it. We have so much more deference in this country, in the United States, for copyrighted material than we do for material that's going to harm children. Part of the reason why that is, is because most people, not the people that listen to this podcast, not the people that are on on the Zoom right now, do not have an understanding of how severe this is. When we were talking about the severity of these files, right? And like, yes, you're absolutely correct that severity is not the same thing as trauma and all those kind of things. But there is this understanding from lawmakers that all CSAM is, is like kids in a bathtub like the types of photos you normally see. That's what the understanding of that is. This data is so important because it takes away that sort of, um, if you will, kind of like emotional protection that people can put up against something that is really, truly terrible and they need to take action against. So we have this current system that shows such deference to sort of the privacy of individuals, to the decisions of big tech companies that allows this scourge of CSAM to be spread about and this full-on market to take place. And so what this research has done is he's taken away that layer of where people can of say that this isn't that bad, this isn't something that they need to worry about, that this isn't as widespread as maybe it suggests. And when they see that number of those 29 million files, which is just a number, they have an understanding of what that number actually is, that there's incest involved, there's sadism involved, that these things are severe and that they need to take them seriously. So the implications, the responsibility that we all have from the takeaway of all these files and all of this work that has been done is that these children that you see in these situations, these children that are, that have been placed in these situations um, through no fault of their own, but also mostly due to sort of an economic lack of resources and being victimized in that way, that we have a responsibility to take care of them. We have a responsibility to help them. And so that is what I think the takeaway is, to take away the ignorance, the intentional ignorance, the will for ignorance that tech companies and generally the general public has about what this stuff is.
0: And Stefan, do you have a particular policy prescription? Is there something that Rain is saying, you know what, if there's one piece of legislation that we would really love to see people get behind, what is it?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. We do have some policy answers, but none of them are complete, right? I mean, like we have a bill like the Earn It Act, which essentially will force big tech companies to have some level of accountability to these children to actually think about kids um, in these processes and to take away the absolute immunity that they have against any sort of civil suit. So I don't know if how many of your listeners know this, but basically there's this thing called the Communications Decency Act that was passed in 1995, I believe. And there's a section of that act called Section 230. Which essentially provides a liability shield for big tech. So they can basically do whatever they want as long as it's not actually illegal, as long as they're not intentionally doing it with anyone else's material. So if someone uploads something, they can share it across their platforms, they can promote it, they can show it to people, they can do all these things and not have any sort of responsibility or immunity from any of the consequences. So I'll give you an example. So Instagram actually built a filter when people were looking for CSAM on their platform that said like, hey, it looks like you're looking for CSAM. You know, a lot of kids can get hurt by CSAM and it's really pretty bad. Um, Click here if you want to get support or click here to see the images anyway. Yeah. Right? Instagram built that. They understand what it is. All these things are on their platform, right? And they built a system to show it to people that are looking for it. And they have that, that decision is a marketing decision. It's a decision based on who their users are and what their users want to do. And they've decided that they want those users to stay on the platform in order to get that, right? That's a business decision that they're making. However, they have complete immunity for that situation. So when some kid on Instagram meets their abuser on the platform, Instagram has no responsibility in that situation in their minds because they're immune from any possible damages. So bills like earn it essentially take that away and says, like, okay, you have to, quote, earn it. You have to earn that immunity by actually being proactive in searching for this and removing it. So bills like that actually go a long way by taking out the bridge that's necessary between these various people that you're talking about. So when the crosses are talking about this marketplace and the way in which these marketed to each other, those videos don't just get to somebody by horseback. They're not being sent by mail. They're being Mm -hmm. sent and they're met across these various systems. And if we can take away that bridge that sends one to another, we're going to take away the market that causes these kids to be put into these situations. So bills like the Earn It Act will help stop that marketplace. Bills like Project Safe Childhood will actually bring people to justice. And bills like the Child Rescue Act, which hasn't been introduced yet, but will be soon, will help law enforcement prioritize kids in this process that need our help.
0: You know, one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is how, you know, the U.S. for a long time has had consumer protections for things like cribs, you know, infant formula, toys, these kinds of things. And when they're dangerous to kids, they're recalled. They're removed from the marketplace until they're corrected. And it just makes you wonder what would happen if we had the same expectation for tech companies in terms of what they're putting out as products that have been demonstrated to be just overtly dangerous for children and their mental health. And, you know, not that I'm expecting it to happen tomorrow, but I think the more we talk about these things and the more we talk to policymakers about these things, and I think we can make changes. I don't feel hopeless about it at all. I think there's a real opportunity here to protect kids better. I just think that, to your point, we have to stop being naive about the idea that big business is going to somehow, on its own, without any regulation, protect kids. That's just really... Hasn't proven to be the case, much to my dismay. So, And given the proliferation
3: of these images across the United States, it's not completely out of the question that there are people in power in business and in government that
0: themselves might be harming children. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because we have had staff of members of Congress who have been arrested for that previously. And I remember those cases very well. So that's very interesting. I want to sort of end on a note about practice implications because I think this has policy implications, but I also think, and you noted it yourself, and the material that I read, you noted that there are some practice implications, particularly for CPS and how that connects with what CECs are doing. So, Ted, do you want to talk about that for a second?
2: Absolutely. We think that anybody involved in investigating child sexual abuse. Providing support and services for children, child victims of child sexual abuse needs to be aware about this predatory marketplace and the potential for people they encountered to be involved in it. These are not two separate worlds. People who are abusing kids in their home have a very high likelihood of also being engaged with CSAM or even selling CSAM or distributing CSAM related to their abuse on the internet, on the dark web. And people need to be aware of that. That means investigations really need to include investigation of suspect's computer and digital devices as a routine part of their investigation. And I know, I think CACs are increasingly aware of that but that needs to be common knowledge among the 900 plus CACs there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And CACs need to be connecting with their Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. You know I'm a big apostle of the power of multidisciplinary teams. Yeah, you know them. I think now, look, we can't have everybody who's relevant show up at every multidisciplinary team meeting, but I think every MDT has to have a strong relationship with their ICAC task force and know how to respond and know how to engage people who are fighting the fight on the internet, as well as in schools and in homes uh, and in community centers around the country. And I think those bonds need to be very, very strong.
0: First of all, let me just say, I thank the three of you so much, not just for coming onto the podcast, but for the work that you're doing, which is really highlighting this critical issue. I just hope that you're Future research projects include more work on this. I'm in one sense hesitant to say it because I know it had to be very emotionally challenging work. But at the same time, I think there's so much that we can continue to learn from this. And I just truly, truly appreciate you coming on. So thank you so much for joining us. And we just really appreciate all that you're doing to help protect kids. Graham,
2: thank you. And
3: thank you for all you and your colleagues do to protect kids.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to 1 in 10. If you know someone who needs to hear this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. And do subscribe to learn more about this and other topics in child abuse about every two weeks. And see you back here soon.